Hello everyone and welcome to this first webinar in our 2022 Science and Life series on rare diseases entitled Reimagining Rare Disease Detection, Who Needs to Be at the Table? I'm Sean Sanders, Director and Senior Editor for Custom Publishing at Science and I'll be the moderator for this discussion. In 2021, we ran a series of nine webinars exploring some of the challenges and successes in the rare diseases field, including topics such as diagnosis and detection, testing, research hurdles and opportunities, and mental health challenges. This year, we'd like to shift the focus to finding solutions and exploring options to improve opportunities for both those researching and dealing with rare diseases. In this first webinar, we're going to revisit some of the themes from last year, but also try to look to the future, asking who needs to be brought into this conversation. Finally, thank you to Foundation Ibsen for sponsoring today's event and this series. I'd now like to take the opportunity to welcome a really fantastic panel that we have with us today. Uh, I'll give each of them a chance to say hello and introduce themselves. And uh, I think we'll start off with Dr. Bill Gall, since he's a returning guest, having been on one of our first webinars in the series around this time last year. So welcome back, Bill. Well, thanks very much, Sean. My name is Bill Gall, and I'm a pediatrician and a biochemical geneticist at the National Human Genome Research Institute at the NIH in Bethesda, Maryland. And I study rare diseases and direct at the NIH Undiagnosed Diseases Program, but I'm also involved in some international efforts to bring undiagnosed disease programs to other nations. Great, thank you, Bill. Uh, next, I'd like to welcome Christina casanova Might. Uh, welcome, Christina. Thank you, Sean, I'm happy to be here. Um, I'm the Executive Director for the Undiagnosed Diseases Network Foundation, and we seek to end the diagnostic and therapeutic odyssey for all through the evolution and expansion of the Undiagnosed Diseases Network. And I started my journey into rare disease advocacy as a parent to a child um, with a rare disease, a new and a blunt rare disease. And uh, I myself am a rare disease a patient now as well, so I'm happy to be part of this conversation. Great, thank you so much, Christina. Uh, third on my list is Avril Daly, who is joining us from Europe. Uh, so welcome, Avril. Yes, thank you, Sean. Thank you for inviting me. My name is Avril Daly. I work as the CEO of Retina International, and that's a patient-led uh, global organization, um, basically of charities and foundations who fund and support research into rare forms of eye disease, uh, retinal disease. Um, I'm also the Vice President of Eurodis, which is the European Organization for Rare Diseases. And I have worked on the development of policy actions around the issues concerning rare diseases for over 20 years now. I'm also a person who's living with a rare disease. I'm affected by retinitis pigmentosa, which is um, a form of inherited retinal degeneration. And I'm delighted to be here today to bring, I suppose, the European perspective uh, to the discussion. Thank you for inviting me. Right. Thank you so much, Avril. Uh, and finally, a warm welcome to Charlene Sun-Rigby uh, from the other side of the hemisphere in California. So many thanks for joining us, uh, Charlene. Thank you, and thanks for um, inviting me. Um, I'm Charlene Sun-Rigby, and I'm the CEO of RareX. RareX has developed a data platform to collect patient-reported data across rare diseases. Um, I've spent my career building software solutions for the analysis of big data. So prior to RareX, um, I was focused on commercializing artificial intelligence technology to speed diagnosis of patients through genomics. 
I'm also the mother of an eight-year-old girl, Juno, who has a rare neurodevelopmental condition. And we found the answer for what was going on with her after a three-year journey. Um, and we found that answer through whole exome testing. Um, I co-founded the STXBP1 Foundation to advance development of treatments for kids like um, my daughter. So I'm glad to be with all of you today. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Charlene. Uh, so I'm uh, going to put the first question to our panel now. And uh, Bill, if I could start with you uh, to explain to us what defines a rare disease and how is rare differently defined around the world? Well, in the United States, the 1983 orphan drug bill defined a rare disease as one that affects fewer than 200,000 individuals in the United States. In Europe, however, the European Union defines a rare disease and as one that affects fewer than one in 2,000 individuals. But that's for a single disease. If you uh, consider the composite of all the rare diseases, it's a lot greater than that. And those estimates go anywhere from 300 million to 30 million to 3 million. So if, if you think about it, um, when someone says that there are 300 million individuals in the world with a rare disease and there are 7 billion people, that's, it's about 5% or one in 20. Whereas the definition in Europe, for example, is one in 2000. So there's a two orders of magnitude difference uh, there. Of course, it's because there are a lot of different rare diseases. But a general estimate that is uh, repeated in the literature is that there are 20 to 30 million people in the world with a rare disease. I think we should also consider, though, all of the individuals who are affected by uh, having a person in the family or an acquaintance or a worker or a boss who has a rare disease. So, so there's an incredible implications for the, the numbers um, and those implications affect all colleagues and family members of people who have rare diseases. Mm -hmm. So Bill, the numbers that you mentioned, do they include individuals who are undiagnosed? Um, so is, is that an estimate of the number of people with rare diseases? Y yes, it really is a, just an estimate. But, uh, how would we know how many people are undiagnosed? And we might have an idea from genetics, uh, which is to say that there are databases that list variants, which are potential mutations, and one can estimate how many times, for example, for a recessive disease, some of the pathogenic mutations will come together to cause a rare disease. And it's always true that the estimates based on those genetic uh, variants are much greater than the actual number of people who are diagnosed. So it's clear that we're not coming even close to diagnosing all the individuals who have rare diseases, at least rare genetic diseases. Great, I, I wanted to give uh, some of the others to others uh, on the panel an opportunity to comment. So Christina, if, if you'd like to, to share any thoughts that you have, especially about the, the, um, the number of undiagnosed uh, individuals. I feel like this is a really important part and something that we spoke about last year where we really don't have a good sense of how many people, uh, both adults and children, who might be living with rare diseases and, and never know it. Absolutely, Sean. And I think that's one of those things that we're currently trying to study along with that economic impact 
because we it's very difficult to make progress in this unless we can quantify it and hopefully put some measures to it. But that is something that we are very interested in. And I'd be interested to hear what Avril thinks as well, since I know that in Europe, there's some some differences in this regard. Mm -hmm. uh, Avril, your yes, thoughts? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, it's it's an interesting one. You know, I think that the points that have been raised already show the complexity. If we're we're looking at definitions that are so so variable and different, I mean, we work in Europe um, on the assumption that there are 30 million people living in Europe with a rare disease and 300 million people globally affected by rare diseases. Um, and you know, we're with uh, Rare Disease International, which is which is an organisation made up of uh, patient advocacy groups that are working globally on all continents. They're working currently with the WHO to look at an operational definition that is very clear that we can work towards um, as a community, as a global community, so that we don't have these these challenges. Because as you say, how can we really define uh, the effects of these conditions, not only on the individuals and their day to day lives, you know, in their everyday, you know, coping with with living with a rare disease, but also the burden on society, the burden on governments, you know, the, the burden on healthcare systems and what we need to plan for for the future if we don't have a, if, we, if we're not aligned. And, you know, I would hope, and it's my hope that in the conversations that we're having today and, and, and others that include a, a broader um, a stakeholder uh, engagement and also a broader geographical discussion um, we can arrive at, at a solution there. You know, it's 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 definitely the co these conversations are important in arriving at that solution because it is a real a real burden currently for all of us. Um, I know from my own perspective, working in an international organisation, um, I talk to our our colleagues in different countries, and you know, it's hard as advocates, you know, to 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 address this issue. So yes, we we are working towards that, and hopefully these discussions will enable enable that further. Great. Thank you so much, Avril. Uh, Christina, I just wanted to come back to you with a question about the, some of the, the psychological effects of living um, with a rare disease and also living with no diagnosis. Um, any, anything that you'd like to share? Oh, absolutely. My son, as I mentioned, he was uh, struggled with a rare disease and for a long time he went undiagnosed. He was one of the first uh, cases of clinical exome sequencing here in the United States, and he was successfully diagnosed um, with a disease called NGLY1 deficiency because of an error in the gene known as NGLY1. And um, for those years, the anxiety, the stress, and the toll on our families and others was significant, and also the toll from multiple misdiagnoses mm -hmm. that almost cost him his life. Uh, and then, you know, the toll on our family, you know, other relationships with um, others. And this is repeated across the rare disease space. It's not unique to us. Um, and actually his rare disease led to my rare disease because living in an ICU for weeks and weeks at a time apparently would give you, in my case, an autoimmune condition. So now I have generalized myasthenia gravis as a result of the stress on the caregiver. So um, obviously it's not my son's fault. Uh, and unfortunately he he did not win his battle against rare disease. He passed away in October of 2020, just shy of 13 years old. Um, but that, that struggle that we faced um, here in the United States is replicated across the globe for patients, for their caregivers and for others within the community. And that stress is, you know, is severe and it's often um, I guess, comorbid with 
you know, several psychological effects. There's oftentimes depression, anxiety, and other issues that come along with that, that um, can sometimes confuse the diagnostic process, I think a little bit, but uh, definitely needs to be addressed more uh, holistically, I think, as we as we treat patients with rare disease, because oftentimes they're seen as a collection of symptoms rather than as a whole or as a person, uh, as a family unit. And we really do need to view things a little bit more holistically to be more, more effective overall and hopefully not waste as many resources, especially time. Um, because, I mean, and I'm sure others can speak to this as well, but I feel like in, in our country, we're very fortunate that people, um, there's not as much societal um, shaming or shunning as there are in some of our colleagues' uh, countries where there's a great deal of fear and isolation more so than there even is here. And I, so that's, it absolutely breaks my heart, but you know, for, for rare disease patients and Africa, for example, they, they've been stoned um, because of the fact that they don't have a diagnosis or that they have a rare diagnosis that's that's intimidating. So the more knowledge, the more insight, the more light we can shed on these diseases, the more acceptance I think there is, even if there isn't a treatment, at the very least, there is um, some humanity and some validation in that. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Yeah, we found in the undiagnosed disease program that when individuals can't put a name on their disorder, there's a lot of suspicion about whether they really have a rare disease or a, or a disorder of that sort. And that has an impact on their relationships with their family and their employers and employees and colleagues, et cetera. But it also has an effect on their physicians. There are times when physicians, in part, I'm sure, because they feel inadequate, uh, because they haven't made a diagnosis, don't actually want to see the patient. And, and we've noticed that in many of the patients who come to us in the Undiagnosed Diseases Program. Mm -hmm. Great. So, Charlene, I'd, I'd like to turn to you now, since you, you've been through a similar odyssey to, to Christina. Um, and I, I'm also interested to know how the work that you're doing at RareX um, impacts this diagnostic odyssey, and particularly um, something that was mentioned earlier, which is the misdiagnosis um, of rare diseases, which can prolong the odyssey and cause a lot of pain and suffering. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we have done, so as I mentioned earlier in my introduction, we are building a platform that enables the collection of data across rare diseases. And we felt that this was very important because um, to start the process for collecting data to start to characterize a disorder can be very expensive and very complicated. And this is often started um, by a patient advocate because there aren't researchers who are interested in their disorder because there might be you know, vanishingly small numbers of patients that have been identified for that disorder. And so um, we really wanted to enable patients to um, be, be able to collect a robust amount of data um, in a um, robust and standards-based way. And you know, going back to this, um, I think you know, two points around misdiagnosis and, and undiagnosed. So the way that we've structured the platform is um, such that we are not assuming that a patient has a particular diagnosis. 
And this is important um, because for a lot of rare diseases, where they're especially where they're new, we don't know what all the symptoms are. And so our goal with um, being able to um, have patients start to collect data is actually to do an initial characterization. Um, and this enables us also to address um, undiagnosed patients because they can start to categorize and catalog what symptoms they're experiencing so that we build a body of data on the road to diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Uh, so I'd like to come back to you, Bill, um, to ask what some of the most critical factors are in the length of time to detection or diagnosis and, and to really ask why does it take so long? Well, one major issue is that physicians and healthcare workers are not familiar with a lot of the rare diseases. So they don't recognize some of the signs. Of course, some of them aren't willing to even uh, admit that they don't know those things and they don't refer. And referral to major medical centers is a critically important issue. But another issue is that uh, in some societies, healthcare is not sufficient for a large portion of the population so that known diseases can't be diagnosed or known diseases can't be eliminated so that a patient can go to a tertiary care center and get the specialized care and uh, diagnostic pursuits that are needed. So I think there are social factors and then there are sort of academic, uh, medical, institutional factors um, and you know, some of them are related to money and some of them are related to people not actually doing their jobs in a way. And by that, I mean not learning enough or referring when they should. Mm-hmm. So Avril, maybe I could, I could come to you just for, as you were talking about earlier, the European perspective. I'm, what I'm wondering is, is, is there a, um, a difference in the education of doctors in Europe or around the world um, that allows them to better detect and diagnose rare diseases? Um, or is this a, a global problem and, and isn't really country specific? I think the issue is global. I mean, I think the situation is 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 a challenge across the board, you know, and it's for the various reasons that have already been highlighted. You know, these are a patient comes into a clinical facility, um, nobody's ever seen this disease before, nobody knows what to do. Um, um, and, cert- and certainly there is an issue with referral that Bill has already brought up, which is which is quite important, actually. The, the, the fact that, you know, I don't know what it is, I don't know who to refer to, so I don't do it. You know, and that does happen. And it's fair to say that it does happen. At a European level, we have been working uh, for a number of years now um, on the development of what we are calling European reference networks. So what we have developed through uh, the European Commission is a sort of a hub and spoke model. So we have um, a hub where we have 24 different disease areas. So say, for example, an expertise center on liver or an expertise center on, on the heart or the skin, or in my case, the eye, you know, et cetera. 24 different networks. And they have a hub somewhere in a European healthcare uh, setting, in a hospital setting. And then they have a spoke system coming from that where you know uh, centers around Europe um, who fit and, and reach a specific criteria set by the European Commission and with uh, collaboration of, of member states and experts in, in, in those in those states in specific areas, they have to reach a criteria for membership of an, a European reference network. 
And that European reference network is really to allow for better diagnostics, among other things. So, for example, in its its five years um, currently in operation, it's developing. It's very much in its infancy yet. But you know, the ambition is that we will use um, databases, uh, centralized systems, so that if somebody walks into a a hospital in in Ghent, for example, in Belgium, with a very unusual condition. That clinician in that center is linked into a European center and can connect um, through that, you know, EPMS system in to see, you know, oh, we have that, we, this is the expert in this area and this is somebody that I can refer to. I'm sure you know what I mean. It's a case of finding ways where the expertise can travel and not necessarily the patient. So we can speed up the diagnostic journey. But also these European reference networks are very important in diagnosis, and also the development of care pathways. And I think that's something that's very important in the area of rare diseases because we've, we we know so much in this space now, we didn't used to. Um, and so therefore there didn't used to be a care pathway for specific conditions. And now we can develop them through these networks and through the development of these networks, which is very important. And also we can learn how to better share data. And this is something that I think has been brought up by, by Christina and also by Charlene. This is so incredibly important. And what we're working on in Europe is what they're calling the European um, uh, health data space. And it's essentially a way in which we can start to look at how do we generate data? How do we curate that data? And how do we, how do we utilize that data appropriately so that we can address a lot of the challenges that are faced? And of course, that will form part of our European reference networks also. So, so it's, it's a sort of a one-stop shop. Ultimately, we also hope that this will help us to drive innovation. The more we learn about disease, the more we can research um, those conditions. So it's really a very important step forward from a European perspective, based very much on American models as well, I have to say. Um, and we're very hopeful that the technologies that are currently being developed and that ability for the, the doctors and, and the researchers to communicate better through these, these networks will lead to better diagnostic options for patients and a more speedy um, diagnosis for patients. So really, from an education perspective, which was your question, I know, it's like these networks are the way in which we can provide that education to our doctors through these networks. And I'd like to agree with that. I think the networks, the European reference networks are spectacular. But I'd also point out that a couple, two, three years ago or so, there was a proposal to have a European reference network for rare and undiagnosed diseases. Yes. And they decided not to do it. They decided instead that each of the ERNs should have enough expertise to recognize those. But there is sort of a basic problem here, which is to say that not all patients fit into the specialty that's covered by one of the ERNs. So I still think it's a good idea to have a, a more centralized, uh, you know, let's say, uh, we'll see all patients who have an, a mysterious disorder or one that's undiagnosed as a possibility. And then, and then the second point I'd make is that there is no specialty in medicine for rare and undiagnosed diseases. Yeah. And there is a person in Hungary named Bella Meleg who is working on that so that there can be a certification within Europe that has no, um, it's not binding or it doesn't get you in, but what it does is it offers you, the, the person who has that certification, enough prestige that the person uh, will be respected enough by universities to um, take care of patients who don't have a diagnosis yet or who have a rare disease. 
And I think that that would be a great step forward too. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with you. I mean, I remember all of this happening at the time and, and, it, and it is what we have been informed as patients and we're working with these ERNs and with the commission on all of this. And it's an evolving situation um, as, as, as I'm sure you're aware. Uh, but the hope is that, you know, some of the networks can work together as well. You know, for example, in, in the eye disease and endocrine, you know, for example, there's there's a lot of different crossovers and hopefully we will find a way to be able to address these issues and evolve, as you as you say, because, you know, one of our biggest issues is the fact that we're dealing with parents all the time whose children just don't have a diagnosis, can't get access to a diagnosis. Nobody knows where to send them. We hope that this is a step forward. Um, it's very much, as I said, five years in, you know, in practice right now, but still very much in its infancy. And we hope that it does get the support from the European Commission that it really does deserve um, in order to be able to develop in the way that you have you have outlined so eloquently. Great. Um, Charlene, I, I saw you nodding your head to a, a number of the comments. So I just wanted to come to you, see if you had any thoughts that you'd like to share. No, I'm, um, I'm I'm very excited to learn about these reference networks. And just from a rare epilepsy standpoint, um, it's it is a huge challenge that you know. For instance, when we got my daughter's diagnosis, um, and we were at a major um, academic center um, in San Francisco, um, we had a very dedicated neurologist. We had a dedicated uh, geneticist, and the first thing that they told us was that they had never diagnosed. A child with STXBP1, and um, you know, so there wasn't even a next step. And we need to give, you know, we need to be able to give patients and their families, you know, a next step. And you know, definitely standards of care and being able to leverage experts, you know, in a remote uh, way, because there are never going to be enough experts for each of those individual um, rare disorders. I think that that's you know, hugely, hugely important. Um, I am very concerned about the multi-system issues, um, you know, that um, that Bill pointed out because, you know, for instance, um, you know, for a lot of neurodevelopmental epilepsies, they, you know, it's multi-system, you know, the, the child might present first with seizures, but the child might present with behavior and autism issues, or they might present with GI issues. And so their point of entry into the healthcare system might be very different while they need to still find, you know, the, the way to that, um, you know, to that particular, you know, expert or standard of care. And so that's, I think, the challenge before us is to get them, you know, through that initial triage period as quickly as possible. Fantastic. Actually, some of the things. Go ahead. Go ahead sorry, if, if I may. One of the interesting things that I've Avril and Charlene and, and Bill have touched upon is, you know, kind of provider education. Um, and that's one of the culture shifts that I think needs to occur or needs to be instilled a lot earlier as we as we train um, doctors, but also nurses and uh, geneticists and, and others who are in this space because I think the willingness to collaborate right now, I'm not sure historically whether whether that's been as ingrained as it needs to be, but technology can only do so much. Uh, the technology that we have is simply phenomenal. And a lot of what we're capable and able to do now is, is fantastic. Uh, for me, the bottleneck seems to be in many cases collaboration. 
Um, that's why in the United States, the Undiagnosed Diseases Network has been so truly uh, successful and, and phenomenal because it's a group that has really focused on collaboration and innovation. But more broadly, that just needs to happen and it needs to start happening sooner and not just within very deep specialties that needs to start, you know, in the pediatrician's office and having that willingness to admit that you don't know and having that be accepted as an okay answer, but um, being able to seek out what that answer is and that next step, as Charlene said. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah, I think sharing and collaboration are greater now than they were 10 years ago and now that then it was greater than it was 20 years ago. And part of it is technology, but part of it is an understanding that uh, as physicians and researchers, we don't know everything and we can make a lot more progress working together. One of the things that was mentioned previously had to do with finding researchers to study particular disorders, especially new disorders. I think funded researchers are, are to engage. And once they find out that there's a human being who may have a disorder that's new, and that's within their um, wheelhouse of scientific research. They're usually overjoyed. I mean, part of it is because there's a financial incentive. They can probably get a grant more easily if there's a human disease associated with it. But remember, researchers are intrinsically curious and want to find out new things. So I, I think if we had more resources, one of the things that I would spend more resources on is having someone look up the researchers who study each of the individual candidate genes that are part of the evaluation of our undiagnosed patients and see if one of those researchers wants to pursue the variant that's found in a gene in one of our patients that doesn't have a diagnosis yet. I think that would be incredibly um, profitable in a way to leverage the total knowledge of our world. Mm -hmm. Great. So I'd like to move on to, to talking about um, uh, what can make a, a, a real difference in the detection and diagnosis of rare diseases. And the, the first question which comes back to uh, the topic of, of this particular webinar is, who are the stakeholders? Who, who needs to be involved? And we, we've talked about a number of, of different groups already, um, but I, I was interested to, to hear if there are any groups that we haven't talked about. And I think, um, uh, Charlene, maybe I'll come to you first, because I think the work that you're doing and using AI is, a, is one of the, the newer areas um, where a, you know, computer technicians and programmers who maybe didn't have anything to do or didn't know about rare diseases are now having a huge impact. Um, so I'll, I'll start with you, and then, and then I'd, I'd like to go to the others. If there's, if there's anybody we've missed who should be at the table to talk about um, the detection and diagnosis. Sean, that's a, a great insight. Um, you know, the uh, because certainly, you know, the players that we think of most are the providers, you know, the um, medical insurance companies, you know, access policymakers. Um, but um, being a technologist um, uh, for my career, you know, I think that, you know, we really, um, you know, uh, can be active stakeholders. There's been, um, you know, a, I think, tremendous, um, a push in terms of technology and um, and development in the area of um, rare disease, um, analyzing rare disease um, and diagnosis. So my uh, my previous company, we worked in 
um, artificial intelligence development. Um, and specifically, um, uh, this was Fabric Genomics, we were developing an um, artificial intelligence algorithm um, called GEM, which is used to bring together phenotype information and genomic data to accelerate and scale diagnosis. And so this technology is being used, um, for instance, at Rady Children's to um, accelerate um, uh, diagnosis of newborns in the ICU, where you know truly every minute, every hour does matter, you know, for um, for these kids. But um, I. Um, it, it's interesting that you use the word stakeholder because you know I think that for um, you know a, a lot of folks who have been in the technology industry, um, they may not have come with a background in biology or a background in rare disease, and making them you know thinking of them as a stakeholder where you know they really are an active contributor and um, you know have a, you know have a, a stake in this um, you know in this arena is very powerful. Um, you know, from uh, from a motivation standpoint. Mm -hmm. uh, Avril, maybe I can get your comments and, and thoughts. Um, you know, do you see any new groups or groups that we're, we're not talking about that should be involved in, in this discussion? I completely agree with, with Charlene on this one um, in relation to uh, bioengineers, engineering, uh, data specialists, IT specialists. I mean, this is all very, very important in how we're going to really address the issue of diagnosis. We know how exciting AI is. You know, we've seen how exciting it could be for us in this community from a diagnostic perspective. So the innovators in that space absolutely have to join, you know, the traditional groups and and, and that are those are the patients, the industry, you know, representatives, um, clinicians, nurses, counselors, uh, you know, scientists. They're, they're the groups that we traditionally think of, but you know, it is it is very, very important, you know, um, as we see, to include those 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 communities. And we're starting to see that actually, um, even here, you know, in, in becoming more involved in, in research applications that we're doing. Um, you know, we're starting to see that sort of interest and that understanding um of how to how to engage. And um and it's great. And and from our perspective, we're seeing in, in the patient community as well, you know, the, the sort of Going back to this idea of education, that that engineers are actually taking the initiative to reach out to us to ask questions, you know, and and what's what could be really important as well in general terms is to sit down with people living with rare diseases um, and just talk to them, and and you know these guys find solutions sometimes through general conversation, and that's something that should be encouraged and and is exciting in this community, um, you know, the necessity of ingenuity we call it, you know it really, you know, where. You know, we can we can talk to each other and listen and and that expert will hear hear the need and 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 maybe understand what the solution could be i i just want to add on to what avril and and charlene have said because their points are all excellent um but i'm going to put my industrial design hat on and say that i mean i really don't see that anybody isn't a stakeholder in rare disease i think everybody is impacted and what I personally would like to see more of in this space and brought to the table are some of these other maybe softer, more human um, expertises as well, including communications and visualization, because being able to communicate that data, like all the data in the world is not going to mean anything unless people can parse it and understand what someone's saying. And sometimes one word can mean something two multiple things for multiple different people. So being able to translate across, you know, from a patient 
to you know a doctor to someone who's in industry sometimes you're using the same word but all the different stakeholders it means something totally different so if there's a way to again refine those those um pieces of technology and bring that communication expertise i think that we can move hopefully the 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 progress on all of these rare diseases a little bit more quickly because uh, you know it, it would be to our detriment to ignore the fact that you know it takes everybody to make something happen for these patients and their families I, I agree that everyone's a stakeholder but i think that there's one group that is not represented at the table right right now and that's poor people so people who have been sort of abandoned by the social network so they can never get far enough to be part of an undiagnosed diseases program. In, in a way, we're all part uh, of, of a club that's privileged and our patients are privileged, but uh, there are places elsewhere where it's just not uh, true. Uh, uh, and it's certainly true in the United States that there's a disparity uh, here in the ability to get to rare disease um, experts and to undiagnosed disease experts, and it's perhaps even more true elsewhere in the world. Uh, so I would say poor people are not at the table and they need to be, and we need representatives in other countries and within our own country of those populations who uh, to sit at the table. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, Bill. That is 100% correct. I mean, advocacy plays such a huge role in whether or not a disease gets uh, researched, whether it gets funded, whether you find partners uh, within pharma or others to develop therapeutics. And if you're poor, you're not likely to have the time or the other resources necessary to be able to pursue advocacy to the same degree that others can. So being able to fill that gap, I know that's something that at the UDNF, it's we're filling that for some, but you know it needs to be done for everybody and it needs to be done globally. So, yeah, great point. Mm -hmm. Right, fantastic. Thank you for, for bringing that up, Bill. And um, it, it covers nicely some of the questions that I was hoping to ask. So I appreciate you doing that. I, I did want to come back to the advocacy side. And, and maybe, Charlene, I can ask you this question about the, the role of advocacy in driving and directing rare disease uh, research. So Christina's already mentioned um, some aspects of that, but I'm also wondering about the impacts of using the internet and social media and online support groups in um, the, within the rare disease community. Yeah, um, thank you. Um, uh, this is something that I'm particularly you know, passionate about. Um, that, um, and we've talked a little bit about this already. That you know, patients are really, you know, oftentimes really kind of starting and sparking things, you know, for research into their particular disorder and. Um, it's a, it's been a hugely, I think, exciting time where we're seeing patient advocates, you know, starting foundations, they're starting research organizations, they're starting companies, they're assembling advisory boards, you know, um, scientific advisory boards, um, defining research roadmaps, even if they had no research background before, um, building registries, and um, it's, it, you know, it's really because the patients have that urgency because, you know, every day, every week that goes by is really significant and they can't wait. And, um, you know, oftentimes patients have to put together 
um, at least a basic amount of data to get researchers, you know, interested so they can, you know, share information about their um, disorder and really, you know, um, spark the interest and excitement for a researcher to take them on um, or take their, their disease on. Um, from a social media perspective, um, you know, I think that it's really been a game changer. You know, because people now you're not necessarily limited to um, your region or, you know, kind of your direct contact network, but you're able to really reach people you know, around the world and to do it in, you know, a very, um, you know, in a very general way. And so, you know, I've seen groups that are, you know, of course, around a specific diagnosis or disorder, but, you know, undiagnosed patients are looking, you know, for people based on, you know, symptoms, um, and even diagnosed patients are, are kind of aggregating into, um, you know, groups where they have similar symptoms. Um, so it's, it's really, you know, been, I think, a, a you know, it's a completely different way of being able to create that network worldwide. Um, you know, in fact, I found the co-founders for my, um, the foundation that we started for STXBP1 um, on Facebook. And um, I would, I would never, it probably would have taken me 20 years to find them, you know, without, without that, um, you know, without that tool. And, you know, the other piece of it is that um, it really also is enabling communities to activate. So, you know, once you've, you know, built that community, you know, whether it be, you know, on Facebook or, you know, on Twitter or, you know, on one of these more specific disease social networks, you know, then there, we have, you now have the ability to interact with that community to count that community because you know what one of the things that I think we um, all are challenged with is, you know, how many um, you know, patients really are in this community. And so this gives us an ability to actually start to get to what those numbers look like. It's incomplete, obviously, but at least start to count those um, and then activate the community to, you know, participate, to participate in research, to fundraise, you know, all of those important things that are on the way to, um, you know, understanding a disorder and, you know, starting to develop therapies. Great. Bill, maybe I can just come to you quickly with your, you know, from a clinician's perspective, what, what impacts do you see advocacy groups having on the, um, the direction and of, of uh, rare disease research and uh, even treatment? Well, advocacy groups are incredibly important. For one thing, they tell us what needs to be studied. They tell us about the natural history. They uh, allow us to recruit enough individuals to know what the disease is like. Uh, they also advocate outside for um, researchers. For example, a, a researcher is unlikely to study a disorder, let's say this is a clinical researcher, if there's only one patient or two patients or so. There need to be enough patients to get enough information. So th that's uh, critically important. There's also some political advocacy that occurs and occasionally financial ad advocacy and, and assistance. But uh, I would say that the most important thing is to know the disease. And in order to know the disease, um, a clinical researcher or physicians need to see enough patients with it. And advocacy groups, individual, that means an incredible amount. It also means a lot to people who are funding research. For example, if you write a, a protocol and ask for help from the NIH or from some other foundation or so, 
one of the first things they'll ask is, do you have an advocacy group behind you? And are there enough patients to study? So it's critically important to have advocacy groups. And it's also, of course, really important for the patients to have someone to share their stories with and uh, to work together. So one aspe aspect that we haven't really touched on very much is um, uh, that uh, Bill reminded me about is the research side. Um, and I'm, I'm particularly interested in uh, incentivizing farm and biotech companies to do more research into rare diseases and, and particularly treatments. So, uh, Christine, I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, on, on how, how best to do this. Uh, is it happening at the moment? Are there some good models for this? Well, I think that there currently are more models than there were like five years ago or 10 years ago. Um, as technology has improved, not just in, um, you know, diagnosis, it's also improved in the development of therapies and new therapies are still coming on board for not, you don't need large patient cohorts anymore, even for small end of one conditions, you can develop therapies for those. Uh, and you can find companies who are willing to do it and nonprofits who are willing to do it. It's just a matter of knowing who those people are, connecting the stakeholders. And like Bill has said, those advocacy groups are at least, you know, having these communities form and work together in order to find who those patients are, be able to let people know how to get diagnosed and how to get treated, to be able to hopefully work together to address policy changes that need to be made uh, nationally, uh, locally, and even within the hospital systems, for example, because I know here in the US, for example, not every hospital system can do gene therapy or can do you know, the delivery of an ASO treatment. So being able to continue to incentivize collaboration, I think is, is critical, but also, you know, the funding of these technologies more broadly, because I think, you know, hopefully the idea that this is a zero sum game has gone away, but I think sometimes in academia, that's still a little bit there. I think technology has been a real game changer in that, you know, it's not a limited pie, the pie keeps growing. So I think that there's room for everybody. And if we're collaborating, we can optimize those resources and use them more wisely. But definitely there are there are ways to incentivize biotech and other other industries to develop treatments because they're already doing it. Uh, it's just a matter of getting to those people and connecting the right players. At least that's what it's the case here. I'd be interested to hear what Avril says on on how it's going in Europe. Well, certainly, from it's it's very interesting what you say. It's it's exactly what I would say myself. To be honest with you, and it's kind of going back to the conversation around social media and and engagement. You know, in the way in which patient groups are coalescing now around maybe a specific gene, um, discovering that there are other patients in other parts of the world that have this condition, you know, talking about it, maybe engaging with a researcher that somebody knows, enabling that research to happen, sometimes through fundraising and with local support or with national support for a particular piece of work. And, and then of course, developing from there, from the perspective of, of industry noticing, let's just say, and, and, and investing in the further development of that particular piece of research, it's very important. But I think, you know, in, in, in the community, it's, it's, it's very important for patient organizations when they do come together to support research, to understand what that journey is 
and how long that journey can be and the various obstacles that will be faced on that journey, you know, and, and all the way through from conceiving of a research idea because of a need, an unmet need, to, to actually understanding how to build a register, um, you know, what data needs to be collected and, uh, you know, patient reported outcome measures, you know, endpoints, all of these the clinical trial design, all of these issues now need to be understood by patients because they're, they're in the space for a reason. They're in the space because they want to find treatments for unmet need. And, and, and I think that the conversations then that are happening with scientists and patients are a little bit more than they used to be. You know, they, they're talking about these issues, how they can develop infrastructures to address these issues, how they can work on these issues together. You know, talking industry at a very early stage about molecule development, you know, and saying, well, actually, you know, this is what's benefit to us. You know, what you need to consider. And these conversations are, as you say, happening. But what we also must consider, and I, I think it came up, uh, it was just something I wanted to mention from a previous um, point that was raised, there is this innovation coming out of patient organizations because you do have people like Charlene, you know, like Christina here, who have experience and understanding of this space and how they can make it better. There are other people who don't, and they need to be supported, you know, as well. And on top of that, um, and they need to be included, as you say, Bill, that's, that's very important. But also innovation is coming out of patient groups, registers that are coming out of patient groups that are being developed and invested in. Where do they go? How are they sustained? You know, what, who's going to sustain those registers? Who's going to develop them? You know, is the national the national health uh, care service provider going to do that? Who's going to do that? You know, is industry going to do that? Who's going to do that? These are questions that we really need to start asking more and more. There are very good examples out there in the community. Those examples are being shared and we're seeing them turn up in different disease areas. And that's what needs to happen more and more communication. And I think what we have learned from the whole COVID experience, to be honest, is that we as a community can use uh, platforms like this to communicate more reg regularly and readily and be able to address these issues that perhaps we wouldn't have been able to come together to, to discuss before. So we have huge op op opportunities now to really not lose the momentum um, and move forward and understand that, you know, we're all stakeholders in this. We're all doing this for different reasons. But ultimately, we want to see benefit. You know, we want to see benefit to the patient. And we have to, in order to achieve that, we have to really engage together from the outset. And that includes industry. And they're definitely doing that, in my experience. Yeah, there are a couple of concrete incentives for industry that have occurred. Uh, and one of them is the Orphan Drug Bill of 1983 in the United States, which allowed for exclusivity if there were approval for um, rare disease or for an orphan drug. And uh, the, the other thing is that some of the fees are waived for the new drug approvals. And that amounts to a huge amount uh, of money, uh, sometimes in the $100 million uh, range. The other issue with the drug companies is that if you have a rare disease that uh, maybe has a drug or a treatment that a pharmaceutical company can move forward, you can try to sell that on the basis of the fact that a common disease might also be treated by that. And that is maybe just about the greatest incentive for drug companies in, in, in my experience. Um, so they get the foot in the door with the rare disease, and then they can test a large number of individuals for the more common disease and extend the indication. And th that, that's a big deal, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. 
Great. So um, we're running out of time for, for this particular webinar, but I, I did want to touch on a, a couple of other um, things quickly that uh, were brought up. Uh, the one, Avril, back to what you were saying about communication, something that occurs to me is you have um, all of these countries or different groups trying to come up with new solutions. Is there a danger that there's going to be splintering um, if there's not sufficient communication? And if so, how do we get all of these different countries and different groups who are developing amazing new technologies, databases, innovating, how do we bring them together so that we can not be reinventing the wheel multiple times yeah. or, or you know, working, working in opposition? Well, what I would say is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure other panelists would agree, there is splintering, that is happening. Um, when it comes to a disease, you know, what, for example, in, in my own space, in the inherited retinal degeneration space, I was diagnosed when I was 23 with retinitis pigmentosa. Now I know that gene. There are 300 different gene types, you know, so there are different genes that are very progressed along, along the research um, journey towards therapy, and that's very exciting. So there's, there is splintering happening in, in, in a lot of disease areas currently. And that's fine. And, you know, people want to support the, the condition that they're affected with or their child is affected by. But there are some fundamental things that we can work together on. And that, that's what we have been discussing here today. We can look at the overarching policy issues. The, those policy issues are related to all rare diseases. The issue of diagnosis, for example, the access to, to a diagnosis, access to a, ge a genetic diagnosis. You know, wh what happens to that piece of information? How do we use the data? All of these issues, they're general issues that we can work together on. And in specific disease areas, say, for example, you know, in, in metabolic disorders or endocrine disorders or liver disorders, they may be different diseases, but there may be overarching areas that groups can coalesce and work together on. In, in, in our area, we work together very much on issues concerning registers, research, um, infrastructure around research, but also regulatory issues. You know, I mean, how do we deal with with a lot of those that are that are emerging currently with, with new therapies, et cetera? You know, so it's it's very important that we educate together. And a lot of these issues are not just, you know, the patients need to be uh, educated on them, but also the researchers and the clinicians as well, because they're new to all of us and we can work together um, on 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 all, a lot of this. So it doesn't mean that I have this very specific gene, so I, I don't need to work with that other group, you do. You know, if you really are serious about getting a therapy from a concept, you know, from an unmet need to the delivery to your child, you have to work with all of these groups because our issues are so, so very, um, you know, common. They're, 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 they're the same issues. And I think that's why we need to work more universally. That's why we need to work more globally. And coming back to the, the very first point that we made about the classifications, you know, of, of these diseases, if if we're starting at a base where we have so many di such diversity there, we're going to have challenge at, at every point. So these con conversations need to happen. They have to be global and we have to work together um, on the overarching issues. Yeah, and just to add to that, I think that that's um, was so well said, Avril. Um, the the each individual disorder does need, you know, obviously very very um, deep research. But you know, at a fundamental level, we do need to come together 
Um, and technology is not going to solve everything. So technology is clearly critical. And you know, we we're I think that we're at an exciting time. You know, and this isn't general it's specific to rare disease, but you know, with cloud technology, data lakes, you know, AI that we were talking about before, we really have this ability to bring together data. But we need to address issues like consent. You know, being able to harmonize government, uh, go governance, sorry, how do you bring data across national borders? Because, you know, since we only have, you know, oftentimes say there's only 10 patients in one country and, you know, 15 patients in another and one patient in a third country, we need to be able to bring that data together and um, enable researchers to really mine it. Um, and, you know, so all of these more um, uh, kind of uh, uh, high level issues need to be addressed across rare diseases so we can truly further you know, what we need to, um, to develop treatments for our communities. So I'm gonna put the, the final question to uh, Christina if I could. Um, and I, I wanted to ask you, Christina, what should the general public know so that they can be better advocates for rare diseases? Uh, is there a, a, a message you would like to send to them um, that can bring them on board and, and help them push some of these, these policies and ideas forward? Goodness, I feel maybe that rare is common. Everybody is affected. It will affect you. Um, there's someone you know, either you, yourself, a loved one, colleague, family member, you name it, that is dealing with a rare disease right now, this very moment. And we will all be better off if we work together to solve these conditions and, and a society as a whole will be benefit, but also you yourself will benefit, right? We all benefit when, when we create a better, happier, healthier, more just world. And I think that that's what everybody on this panel has been been all about. So I'm, I'm very happy to be a part of this and thanks for, for having us. Mm -hmm. Great, well, uh, thank you so much, Christina. And uh, unfortunately, we're going to have to stop there as uh, we are out of time. Uh, many, many thanks to all of our panelists for being with us today. Uh, it's been a real delight talking with all of you. Uh, I've learned so much and I hope our audience did as well. Uh, a reminder to our viewers that you can see a recording of this webinar as well as all of the previous events in the series at science.org slash webinars. Uh, this webinar uh, is the first in a series of six that we'll be running this year, so do look out for more coming soon. So thank you once again to our fantastic panel uh, and to Foundation Ibsen for enabling this conversation through their kind sponsorship. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>